This is Guns and Butter. about a guy whose father, Sadiq Mateen, was running for president of Afghanistan. He was a frequent visitor at the White House, or at least he's been photographed there with presidents. Uh, he was a close associate of the Northern Alliance, which was the front group of drug smugglers that the CIA uh, organized to overthrow the Taliban. Sadiq Mateen apparently had some difficulties with some of his handlers and uh, who knows whether that may have contributed to his son Omar Mateen being selected as the patsy for the false flag operation in Orlando. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, Recent False Flags. Kevin Barrett has taught Arabic, Islamic studies, folklore, African literature, French, and humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and San Francisco State University. He holds a Ph.D. in African languages, Arabic, with an Islamic studies focus from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the editor of a trilogy of anthologies on false flag terror. We are not Charlie Hebdo. Free thinkers question the French 9-11. Another French false flag? Bloody Tracks from Paris to San Bernardino, and his most recent Orlando False Flag, The Clash of Histories. Today we discuss the Orlando shootings within the context of the strategy of tension and the increasing frequency of false flag terror attacks. Kevin Barrett, welcome. It's good to be back with you, Bonnie. You have just published your third anthology on false flag events, Orlando False Flag, The Clash of Histories, that completes a trilogy of anthologies beginning with We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Freethinkers Question the French 9-11, and Another French False Flag, Bloody Tracks from Paris to San Bernardino. In your preface to Orlando False Flag, The Clash of Histories, you write that Bernard Lewis and Samuel Huntington wrote that we are famously living through a clash of civilizations, pitting Islam against the West. This book suggests, on the contrary, that much of the tension afflicting today's world is the product of a clash of histories. What is meant by a clash of histories? Well, I got that term from Rafiq who is one of the contributors to this book. And I think uh, the way he's using it is, is that the word history, we usually think of that to mean what really happened in the past. But, of course, that's the product of storytelling. And if you go back into the etymology of the word history, you find that it used to mean uh, just a narrative, a story. You know, there, there were stories like the, the history of Tom Jones, a foundling, and things like that. So the, the word history has this kind of double sense built into it. Uh, on the one hand, it's what really happened in the past. On the other hand, it's the storytelling that constructs our present idea about what really happened in the past. And uh, we have a real clash going on right now uh, between the two principal views of what's really been going on since 9-11-2001. And the mainstream view is that uh, crazy Muslims keep attacking us, and sometimes they get really lucky, like on 9-11, uh, or in Orlando, for that matter, as we'll get into, and that this has created the so-called war on terror, 
meaning that we have to go all out on a war footing and kind of suspend the Constitution and double our military budget and uh, have military engagements all over the world to try to stop this plague of terrorism. The other view, the, the clashing view with that, which is the one I represent, argues that this is really a gigantic hoax that, in fact, well, to start with, you're more than 10 times more likely to drown in your bathtub or uh, to be hit by lightning than to be killed by a terrorist. So there is no statistically significant terrorist threat to Americans whatsoever. We would not be justified in spending one red cent to combat it. Instead, we're spending trillions. Uh, in fact, I think the, the, a recent study showed multiple trillions is what this war has cost. So this this contrasting, clashing, uh, dissident view, and I'm, I'm one of the uh, people who's pushing it, uh, is that what's really going on is that we've been tricked into believing that there's this terrible terrorism problem, and a lot of it stems from the religion of Islam and Muslims, and so we have to take all these steps that we've taken, wage wars all over the world, kill people with drone attacks, suspend the Constitution, and so on and so forth. And in fact, uh, that has been constructed by storytelling, and the kind of storytelling that has constructed this has been based around false flag events, which are emotionally compelling, powerful, uh, apparent uh, happenings in which we believe that these evil terrorists have killed lots and lots and lots of people. And sometimes maybe lots of people have been killed, but it's actually the whole thing has largely been arranged by the people who are trying to construct this false narrative. Could you briefly describe the Orlando, Florida Pulse nightclub shooting of June 12, 2016, as reported in the mainstream media? What were we told went on, and what are some of the things that private researchers have discovered? Well, we were told that a lone Muslim nut, a radical extremist Muslim nut, a guy named Omar Mateen, who happens to be the son of Sadiq Mateen, a very high-level White House and CIA-linked Afghan political player, uh, went into the Pulse nightclub around closing time at 2 a.m. in Orlando, Florida, he got into a little bit of a shootout, supposedly, on the way in with a guard, but there's not much evidence of that, and nobody was hurt. Once he was inside, we have conflicting official narratives. One version says that he killed most of his 49 total victims and uh, his 53, I think it was, wounded victims uh, pretty quickly, and then retreated with hostages into a restroom where he stayed for, uh, I believe, approximately three hours, I think it was. It was either two or three hours uh, with these hostages. And the police didn't try to come in or interfere until uh, the end of the standoff, which I think was around five in the morning, four or five in the morning, uh, when police finally got the authorization to enter. And then they used a, a police armored vehicle to knock down the wall. And people came streaming out. Uh, and supposedly Mateen was shot down in a gun battle. So the total number of dead was, uh, I believe, 49, the total number of wounded, 53, and the official uh, number of uh, bullets fired by Mateen was about 200 bullets, uh, meaning that he killed or wounded someone uh, more often than he didn't with with, uh, with each bullet. So that, that's the official version. And there are all sorts of problems with it, as uh, readers of my book will notice. Well, then, what are some of the things that private researchers have discovered? 
Uh, well, the first uh, item here is that, the, as the mainstream story admits, uh, 200 bullets with uh, 49 dead and 53 wounded doesn't add up. That would be a feat of shooting, uh, pretty much, uh, it would be completely unprecedented that such a thing has never happened. That's way too many victims, way too many accurate shots, um, but that's really just the beginning. That was the first thing I noticed, was this extraordinarily high count of dead and wounded for uh, 200 bullets. Um, but then uh, the more we look at this, uh, the more problems we find. For one thing, we were told by the media that this was an Islamophobic, uh, on gay kind of false flag. Uh, we were told that Omar Mateen, like radical Muslims, perhaps Muslims in general, supposedly hates gay people. So he did this out of uh, Islamophobia uh, because he's such an extremist Muslim. Then it emerged very quickly from many, many sources, including his ex-wife, that Omar Mateen was gay himself and that he had been a regular at the Pulse nightclub, that he had dated many uh, men in the Orlando gay community, and that the FBI was leaning very heavily on witnesses and trying to silence them. They tried to silence uh, Mateen's ex-wife in order to prevent this uh, story that he was gay from getting into the mainstream media. So that, uh, of course, presents a real problem with the official narrative that uh, of, of a homophobic Islamic attack on gay people. And uh, another uh, issue that's come up, and this has been uh, raised by all sorts of people, including our lead researcher in the book, former CIA clandestine services officer Robert David Steele, uh, that Omar Mateen had an extraordinary background with the uh, black operations intelligence community. He was employed by Wackenhut, or G4S. They had to change their name because Wackenhut became so notorious. That's the outfit that the FBI and CIA says gets called in when a job is too dirty even for them. He worked for this outfit after graduating from a four-year police academy, so he was a trained police officer. And while he was working for Wackenhut, he was doing all sorts of bizarre things that should have gotten him not only fired but prosecuted, such as uh, threatening to have his Al-Qaeda buddies kill his co-worker. That was just one of the many scenes he apparently staged. And we know they were staged because he was not even reprimanded or transferred to a less desirable work site, uh, much less fired or prosecuted. Uh, so he was playing the role of a radical Muslim uh, for Wackenhut, even as he was uh, apparently leading this, this you know, double life as a wild and crazy gay guy. So that's a, another uh, uh, issue that researchers have found. And, and another critically important issue is that he was scheduled to fly on June 14th. So he, he purchased tickets for himself and his family to fly out to visit relatives in the Bay Area, actually. And this uh, seems rather anomalous if, as the official story says, he had already bought the gun and was preparing to do the deed uh, back then. Um, so, so these are just a few of the issues, but there are many, many more. Uh, Robert David Steele, again, he's, he's not just a CIA clandestine services expert, but he actually uh, ran a false flag operation himself for the CIA, in which he tells us nobody got killed, and it wasn't particularly successful in terms of its objectives. Uh, he, he has counted 70 anomalies, 70 uh, anomalies, indicators, or red flags, uh, and so I, rather than go through all of them, I'll let you uh, point me in whichever direction you like. Um, I just remembered reading something that Dr. James Tracy posted after this event that Omar Mateen was actually an actor 
and he had an IMBD page in which he was featured in a film called Orlando Shooting or something like that. And when he posted this, then the, the citation was taken down. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, I think I saw that. And he, yes, he was an actor. He appeared in two films, and in one of them, he uh, basically played himself. It was a film, was it, I think it was about Deepwater Horizon. It wasn't this new one, but, but he, he was in a film about some kind of disaster in which he played a security guard, and his role was bad boy. And of course, that's pretty much what he played in quote-unquote real life for Wackenhut, otherwise known as G4S, was the bad boy security card. And, and he was in another film as well. So yeah, he, he was apparently um, an actor. And it's hard to tell where his acting responsibilities ended and his G4S responsibilities begin. Uh, maybe you should talk very briefly about false flag events. What is the strategy of tension? And are false flag terror events part of this strategy? Well, the, the term false flag comes from naval warfare, in which a ship would hoist uh, a flag that didn't represent its true allegiance, so it could get within cannon range or otherwise fool the enemy, or maybe start a war between two other parties. And the strategy of tension is driven by false flag terror attacks, that is, terrorism events, which are not carried out by the people who are blamed for them. The strategy of tension was a word coined to describe what was happening in 1960s and 70s Europe under Operation Gladio. Operation Gladio was a Pentagon program run by the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States military, uh, founded by Lyman Lemnitzer, a notorious criminal, uh, and run through NATO. And it essentially created uh, a bunch of terror events in Europe during the Cold War. In fact, all of the most heavily publicized terror events in Europe during the Cold War were in fact orchestrated by the U.S. military through Operation Gladio. The Red Brigades was so heavily infiltrated and steered that it was essentially acting as a branch of the U.S. military. Uh, they murdered Prime Minister Aldo Moro at the orders of, well, it probably went back to Henry Kissinger. We're not 100% sure of that. The uh, Bader-Meinhof gang in Germany, another notorious terror outfit that killed a lot of people, was also essentially a branch of our own military. And the Brabant shootings in Belgium, uh, where people were being shot down on sidewalks and in supermarkets, were also being carried out by agents of the U.S. military. And all in all, uh, many hundreds of people were killed in Western Europe, and the total rises into the thousands. If we talk about Turkey, the uh, Pope was shot by our own military as a false flag to be blamed on the USSR. So this was a real reign of terror during the Cold War. Its purpose, the strategy of tension, was to create fear and tension in the population. So they would vote for right-wing pro-American parties and stop voting for uh, left-wing pro-independence anti-U.S. empire parties. It was a political thing. And, and today we're seeing the new kind of strategy of tension. The fear and tension is targeted towards Muslims. And the false flag terrorism is used to drive uh, the so-called war on terror, which is really a very nebulous sort of excuse for military intervention all over the world. And it, it also serves Israeli geostrategic uh, objectives as much as American ones, and probably has a serious Israeli component as well as a U.S.-NATO component. I'm speaking with author and radio host, Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, Recent False Flags. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
Why would staged terror incidents target innocent civilians, say women and children, for instance, instead of political enemies of those said to be the terrorists? What's the point? Well, Vincenzi Vinciguerra, who was an Operation Gladio terrorist employed by American tax dollars through the Pentagon, was actually convicted of uh, killing people as part of Operation Gladio. And he testified in court that you had to kill innocent people, women, children, uh, and he explained that the purpose uh, was to create fear in the population so they would go running towards authoritarian leadership. Uh, in fact, targeting non-combatant civilian sort of random people is not something that actual uh, national liberation type terrorists tend to do. For instance, the, uh, the Palestinian freedom fighters uh, don't randomly target European and American civilians. That would obviously harm their cause, just as the Vietnamese didn't come over to the United States and blow up skyscrapers or shoot people in nightclubs or whatever. Uh, that would be a completely insane military strategy. And terrorism is just a military tactic, so it's always used um, intelligently and strategically. So every terror event must be assumed to be, and virtually always is, orchestrated by the people who benefit from it. And then again, what is the benefit derived from blowing up innocent civilians? Well, uh, as Vince Aguirre explained, <laughs> it, uh, it, it drives fear in the population. And a fearful population is not going to be thinking critically about its leadership, about the uh, important issues, and most importantly of all, fear in the population drives war and violence. Uh, people are by nature essentially defensive. That is, most human beings are not really interested in aggressive violence against others, uh, but they will use violence to protect themselves if they are fearful and feel that they are under threat. So the, the problem is that the national leaders that want war uh, are not looking for defensive war. Nobody is interested in launching uh, a defensive war. All wars are launched by a more powerful country or entity that's targeting a less powerful country or entity in order to steal its resources. And so, therefore, those who are plotting aggressive war to steal resources from somebody who's weaker have to somehow convince their population that this is actually defensive. So how do you do that? You know, if you're, let's say, the United States and you want to steal half of Mexico's territory and it's 1846, how are you going to convince the American people to just march off and steal Mexico's territory? Well, you orchestrate a fake Mexican invasion. You have Americans run into Mexico and fire up some shots at Mexican troops, and then you have it reported in the media as though the Mexicans attacked the U.S. And so that's what happened. That's how we stole uh, half of Mexico's territory. And then the same thing happened in uh, 1898 with the Remember the Maine incident, which set off the so-called Spanish-American War. Once again, a very, very strong U.S. coveted the lands and resources of a very, very weak Spain. And in order to start that war, essentially American agents blew up the USS Maine. And we now know from the Admiral Rickover study in the 1990s that that ship blew up uh, from within. It did not hit a Spanish mine. It was not attacked by outside Spanish forces. And on and on. We see the same pattern with the Lusitania incident that drove U.S. involvement in World War I with the orchestrated eight-point plan that forced the Japanese to attack at Pearl Harbor with the U.S. fully aware and the British and everybody else fully aware that they were coming and purposely allowing those 2,000 people to be killed in, uh, to get us into World War II. 
the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident, which didn't happen, but it was reported as a North Vietnamese attack on the U.S. that brought us deeper into Vietnam, and on and on and on, up through 9-11 and the subsequent acts of false flag terror. So essentially, to have war, you have to have these kinds of events, especially if they target innocent people, it's great. I mean, sometimes they target military people, like at Pearl Harbor. Sometimes there really is an enemy attack, as at Pearl Harbor. But as Vince Garris said, the best way to really make the population fearful, so then it will respond by obeying orders and marching off to war, uh, paying high taxes for war, giving up civil liberties, all that sort of thing, you terrorize them by targeting them. That means targeting innocent people, innocent women, children, uh, civilians. Are there common traits that characterize these violent incidents that terrorize the populace? For instance, are investigations conducted before blame is assigned? Well, one of the key signs of a likely false flag is that blame is assigned almost instantly. Uh, And if it's not a false flag, it may take a very long time for the media to tell us uh, who did it. Um, You know, examples of blame being assigned far too quickly include, well, with 9-11, just minutes after the first tower was hit, Ehud Barak, the former Israeli prime minister, was in the studios on BBC telling us who did it and what would happen. He said bin Laden did it and we're going to have to go to war. There'll be a war against Iraq and Afghanistan. That was just minutes after the first plane hit the building. At that time, most people weren't even sure it was even a plane. They had no idea what was going on. Uh, So Yehud Barak, who had actually come to America in the spring of 2001, and uh, a lot of evidence suggests that his job was to organize the coming 9-11 attack. Christopher Bolin has written about this in his book, Solving 9-11. Uh, Barack just happened to be there in the BBC studios in London in time to be on television minutes after that first plane hit. And we see this pattern over and over and over with the uh, so-called radical Islamic terror attacks driving the war on terror. There's always somebody, uh, usually Israeli-linked, pre-positioned to provide the quick uh, propaganda footage and to assign blame. Uh, And likewise, of course, we had the 19 hijackers already identified by the day after uh, through ludicrously improbable means. Uh, And we've seen the same thing uh, with with many of these other terror attacks as well, uh, such as the Charlie Hebdo attacks, where the French interior minister, Cazeneuve, said the only reason we caught these guys was they dropped their ID cards in their abandoned getaway car, um, allowing them to ID the perps uh, almost instantly. So if they know who did it instantly, that's always a sign that it's probably false flight. Right, and I'm thinking that one of the other traits of a, of a false flag, of course, as you've just mentioned, is that the accused will leave their ID behind. I mean, there are many instances of that. And then uh, what about uh, news being reported uh, before it happens? I'm thinking here of uh, one incident with uh, the French President Hollande. Uh, wasn't uh, the news of his speech released before he even, even made the speech after one of these Paris attacks? Yes, I believe that was the uh, second Paris attack, November 13th, 11, 13, 15. And I believe it was researcher Oli Damagard who found that the text of Olan's speech had actually been published on Wikipedia an hour before he made the speech. Uh, and there are many glitches like this. Uh, for instance, let's see, with Building 7 and 9-11, that's a, that's a clear case of a, a news report that came 20 minutes early We had the BBC uh, reporting, and actually CNN had reported before that, that Building 7 had collapsed 
uh, 20 minutes before it actually did at 5.20 something in the afternoon. Uh, so there are a number of cases like this. Uh, with the JFK assassination, there was a famous one where the Stars and Stripes newspaper in New Zealand published a detailed bio on Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone gunman, the uh, patsy actually, and they did that uh, too early. Apparently they hadn't planned for the international dateline, so even before Oswald had been arrested and identified, he had a full bio published by Stars and Stripes in New Zealand. And uh, so these kinds of glitches do happen, and unfortunately our mainstream media is not interested in exposing them. And what about terror drills happening at the same time that replicate the specifics of the attack? There are quite a few instances of that, aren't there? Oh, yes, it happens all the time. Uh, Again, with that second Paris terror attack of November uh, 13th, 2015, I uh, believe there was a drill going on that same day that not only mimicked the exact uh, kinds of attacks that we were going to see, such as uh, multiple location uh, shooters and so on, But also, the number of victims, I believe, was identical to the number of victims that were actually claimed in the real attacks. So that was another case of an astounding coincidence. And and we had reports in the French media of people who were apparently involved in in this, uh, talking about it, talking about how they had all the EMTs out and they had all the anti-terror police out. Everybody was out, ready to go through their drills. And then the real thing happened. Uh, Something similar happened in London on um, July 7, 2005, when Peter Power of Visor Consultants uh, went on television uh, in in shock. He he was astounded and he was shocked that these actual four bombings, which hit uh, three subway locations and one bus, had happened at the precise times and places as the imaginary bombs that were supposed to go off in the terror exercise that he was running the same day for Visor Consultants and an unnamed client. Uh, So that's the the most extreme example. But there are many other examples, including on 9-11, the 46 drills, war games, and terror exercises associated with 9-11, of which 20-some were actually going on that day, making September 11, 2001, by far the biggest pre-scripted national security special event day in U.S. history. Webster Tarpley has written quite a bit about that. Uh, So yes, this is a a pattern that we uh, repeatedly see that drills coincide with actual or supposedly actual terror attacks. And I believe the perpetrators do this because it's a way to, uh, to prepare the actual attack. That is, the people who are working on it in whatever agencies do this uh, maybe working next to coworkers who would get suspicious, uh, but then they could say, oh, it's, it's just a drill. And then likewise, uh, planes or you know, various people and so on can be moved into position by way of drills. And quite often, patsies may actually be people who think they're playing a part in a drill, and then before you know it, they're the ones who are blamed for the event, and then they're always shot dead. Again, over and over, as with Omar Mateen, as with the French false flags, uh, Nice, uh, San Bernardino, and on and on and on, we seem to almost always see these patsies getting shot dead, and therefore not having a chance to defend themselves, not having a chance to have any investigation. That didn't work in Boston, where one of the Patsies survived the attempt to shoot him dead, but uh, they had to go back to Plan B then to keep him silenced. They brought in a CIA-linked lawyer, uh, and so Zokar Sarnaev, who is clearly innocent of the Boston bombing, which was carried out by Kraft International operators, as photographic and video evidence clearly shows. Uh, he's, He's innocent, but he's on death row. 
So uh, this is the kind of pattern we see repeatedly, these drills, uh, patsies moved into position and usually executed. I'm speaking with author and radio host, Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, Recent False Flags. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. One of these common uh, characteristics, as you've just said, is that the accused are hunted down and killed uh, so that they can't be interviewed. That's that's a, a common trait. Also, what about camera evidence not released, withheld, or destroyed? Yes, it's amazing, isn't it, how every time one of these big terror events happens, there's no uh, video evidence, the CCTV cameras aren't working, uh, or if they are working, then the National police come and order all of the footage destroyed, which happened in Nice. Uh, it's it's kind of uh, mind-boggling. Uh, for instance, on 7-7-2005 in London, there was uh, supposedly, according to the official story, uh, a, a glitch happened in the tube's security system, and so there was virtually no security footage available that day. And the only thing that's been made public is a blatantly forged image. Uh, with the uh, Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, once again we have the story that there's absolutely no CCTV footage because, once again, it malfunctioned. Uh, in Paris on November 13, 2015, with that multiple location uh, shooting and bombing, a series of attacks, uh, once again, there was a, a massive failure in security footage. And so there's there's no security footage available for the Bataclan nightclub, none for the street. Uh, and then in Nice, uh, interestingly enough, there actually apparently was some security footage of the alleged truck attack that happened this summer. And that footage was then ordered destroyed by the French National Terror Police. And the local police fought back against that order. I'm not sure how it's been resolved, but the footage is either under lock and key and nobody has seen it, or it's been destroyed. And then, of course, another a common characteristic of a false flag would be prior surveillance of uh, the accused by governments. Now, that happens quite a bit, doesn't it, where we find out that uh, uh, the person that's being accused of being behind some kind of an attack turns out that the uh, police had been surveilling them sometimes for years. Yes, that's, that's right. Uh, Omar Mateen was under surveillance for a full year by the FBI, supposedly. Uh, his ties to the FBI might even be closer than that. Um, in Paris, the alleged Charlie Hebdo terrorists, the Kawachi brothers, were under surveillance by the authorities, and indeed they'd actually been arrested for child pornography, and then that arrest was made to go away, which suggests that they were not just under surveillance, as the authorities admit, but rather they were acting as intelligence assets. And that's a pattern that we often see as well. Uh, these so-called uh, terrorists have an amazing ability to travel anywhere they want to, uh, cross borders, walk out of situations that would get anybody else arrested. It's as if they have get-out-of-jail-free cards. For instance, the supposed mastermind of the uh, November 13, 2015 Paris attacks was arrested, or at least pulled over by the police in a car, I believe, with two associates, uh, fleeing the scene of, of the crime outside of Paris. They were pulled over. The car was thick with marijuana smoke, and they were drunk. Um, interesting fundamentalist Muslims there, but that's how it always is with these, these attacks. And the, the police 
apparently just waved him on. Now, this guy was the most wanted man in Europe. His face was on all the APBs. This was even before <laughs> this last attack. And here he is, stoned and drunk out of his mind with the full jihadi beard and everything, and he's just waved on. So, rather obviously, uh, he did have some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. Likewise, the Kawachi brothers, who'd been busted for child porn and apparently put on French intelligence payroll, uh, were crossing borders that couldn't have been crossed. They went from Israel into Arab countries that will not let you in with an Israeli passport stamp. Their passport stamps actually appear to have been fabricated as part of their intelligence agency legend, but uh, the official story is they were traveling back and forth to Yemen to train with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And uh, with, with Omar Mateen, the alleged perpetrator of the Orlando attack, uh, he took a bunch of mysterious trips, high-end trips, that he shouldn't have been able to pay for with his whack and hut salary to Saudi Arabia, where he may have been meeting with uh, people who were involved in setting up the kind of thing he did. So yes, uh, terrorists like the 9-11 terrorists, who also were traveling all over the world back and forth out of the U.S. on phony work visas when they had no jobs in the U.S., and these were, of course, not real work visas. They were the type of work visa that the CIA gives its assets as a reward for their services, so these uh, 15 Saudis that allegedly hijacked the planes on 9-11 were, in fact, in the U.S. on CIA snitch visas or reward visas, and those visas were special visas that got them in and out of the country as often as they liked. So, yeah, these, these alleged radical, lone wolf, crazy Muslim terrorists with their full jihadi beards uh, tend to be uh, wild and crazy uh, drinkers, drug users, uh, woman chasers, uh, in the case of Muhammad Atta, pork shop eaters and this loose, wild, and crazy behavior that they're able to do on this money that they're getting from their handlers uh, often involves crossing borders at will, uh, even if they're on the most wanted list. And what about the use of private mercenaries? Is this a, a common trait to false flag incidents? Well, sure, Bonnie, because the mercenaries are the specialists in violence. And if you want a job done, you better call in a professional. So actual mayhem is typically carried out by the professionals, that is, people who are trained in this sort of thing, the folks you know, who read Soldier of Fortune. And it isn't surprising that sometimes they actually get cited at the locations where they're doing the, uh, the damage. For instance, in San Bernardino, we were told that the terrorists, who were, of course, uh, executed before they could talk and before there could be any trials or investigations, well, that consisted of a Muslim couple, and the, the female member of which weighed about 100 pounds or less. Yet multiple eyewitness accounts tell us that the actual shootings were conducted by three large white paramilitaries. And you can feed that term into your search engine and find those reports, uh, including live you know, interviews with people saying this. And the same thing is, is true elsewhere, including at the Belle Equipe shooting, in Paris, again on November 13, 2015, one of the locations that was attacked was the Belly Cleep nightclub, and there a limousine pulled up, and large white paramilitaries got out, uh, started shooting, and jumped back in and drove off, according to multiple eyewitnesses. So it's not that surprising that the professional purveyors of violence who are called upon to do the actual dirty work in these kinds of situations uh, are actual professionals, and then the people who are blamed and then executed are uh, the, the patsies, and those are usually Muslims. In your article, Orlando Nightclub Shooting, Another False Flag, you ask who benefits? Who would benefit from this Orlando nightclub shooting? Well, that was the first question I asked myself when the news came across the wires 
on June 12th, the first thing I thought of was, oh my goodness, you know, this is perfectly timed to wipe the memory of Muhammad Ali week out of everyone's minds. You know, Muhammad Ali was really our most celebrated Muslim fighter, not just a fighter in the sense of a boxer, who, as George Carlin said, is paid to beat people up, but also a fighter for truth and justice. He was a a very brave man who sacrificed uh, his career to refuse to go to Vietnam, and he spoke out on behalf of victims of injustice and oppression all over the world, including occupied Palestine, where he famously, uh, he said, I speak for all American Muslims in in calling for uh, the people of occupied Palestine to rise up and drive out the invaders. Uh, So he's a a strong-willed Muslim uh, speaking the truth and speaking the views, giving voice to the views that most Muslims hold, but many are afraid to speak publicly. And the whole world was celebrating this guy's life. You know, he had just died a week or something before this, and there was just nonstop adulation of the great uh, Muslim freedom fighter for truth and justice, Muhammad Ali. And then, as if it were inscribed, you know, somewhere in the script, boom, this gigantic event in which one guy shooting 200 rounds supposedly kills 49 people and wins 53 in this nightclub. Oh, evil radical Muslims hate gay people. That's the propaganda line that they were pushing. That's what this was designed to do. And so people's memories of this positive view of the Islamic freedom fighters standing up for the underdog like Muhammad Ali gets completely shoved deep down into the memory hole. And this new image, this emotionally powerful image is implanted deeply into people's subconscious. And that image is evil, radical Muslims hate and kill gay people. That was the propaganda message that Orlando was designed to drive home. What about FBI terror plots and hapless patsies? Have there been many of such incidents? Well, uh, there's so many that uh, I've lost count. Uh, Trevor Aronson, in his book, The Terror Factory, lists 600 cases of alleged Muslim terror plots since 9-11. And virtually every single one of those cases has actually been an FBI terror plot hatched by the FBI, and then they tried to sell it to some hapless Muslim patsy, usually a retarded teenager or some other marginal, unstable, alcoholic, or otherwise troubled and unsophisticated individual. And so in virtually all of these cases, uh, what we have is not Islamic terrorism, it's FBI terrorism. And for details, I urge your listeners to read Trevor Aronson's book, The Terror Factory, which is copiously documented. Uh, And he didn't know this when he set out to write the book. He was actually curious about Muslim terror plots post 9-11. And he was shocked, as you will be shocked, to read the book and discover that there aren't any. It's all FBI terror plots. The Orlando shooter was, quote, on the radar of U.S. officials, but not a target of a specific investigation. What does this indicate, in your opinion? Well, uh, on the radar is, is kind of an understatement. You know, we're talking about a guy whose father, Sadiq Mateen, was running for president of Afghanistan. He was a frequent visitor at the White House, or at least he's been photographed there with presidents. Uh, he was a close associate of the Northern Alliance, which was the front group of drug smugglers that the CIA, which is the Bull Goose Drug Smuggling Organization on planet Earth, uh, organized to overthrow the Taliban. Sadiq Mateen apparently had some difficulties with some of his handlers 
and uh, who knows whether that may have contributed to his son Omar Mateen being selected as the patsy for the false flag operation in Orlando. Uh, and, and some of this background information is explored in one of the essays in my book, which is by Kader Mohmand, who was the former representative to the United States of the Afghan freedom fighters during the 1980s. And he uh, is not happy with the way Afghanistan has been destroyed by this war that has essentially empowered the drug lords. You know, when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, the first thing it did was set all the drug lords free because they were part of the so-called Northern Alliance and encouraged them to plant. And so the Taliban had shut down the heroin crop and shut down the world's heroin industry. But shortly after the U.S. got control of Afghanistan, uh, suddenly Afghanistan began creating uh, record heroin crops. And Sadiq Mateen was part of that Afghan CIA-linked drug mafia. So Omar Mateen was very much on the radar screen through that uh, of, of the national security community. And of course, he was working for G4S, uh, the notorious paramilitary group I already mentioned. And uh, he was investigated for a full year by the FBI, and the investigation then just went away. Likewise, whatever investigation may have been conducted about his threatening co-workers that he was going to have al-Qaeda kill them, that all just went away too. So clearly he was a, a protected asset of some element or elements of the intelligence community. I'm speaking with author and radio host Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, Recent False Flags. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You conclude this new anthology with an afterword. Are false flags becoming more frequent? Dallas, Baton Rouge, Nice, and Munich. All of the aforementioned incidents took place in July of 2016. What can you tell us about the police shootings in Dallas, Texas on July 7th? And were there similarities with the July 17th police shootings in Baton Rouge, Louisiana? Well, you know, I, I haven't done uh, really thorough investigations of these two incidents, but what really jumped out at me just from kind of looking at the surface of the mainstream narrative and the media reporting on this is that in both of these cases, in Dallas and Baton Rouge, we had very convincing reports of multiple shooters then devolving into blaming uh, a lone nut patsy. And then in both cases, the lone nut patsy gets executed and can't defend himself. Now, you know, maybe there's an innocent explanation for this, but in the case of Dallas, the official version of how the alleged lone nut shooter was killed is highly improbable. They claim that there was some sort of drone-like robot, police-like crawling robot or something that crawled around the corner and blew him up. Um, Robert David Steele, who's an expert in mayhem, uh, says that that's complete BS. <laughs> it couldn't have happened like that. I don't know for sure, but... Whenever I see this kind of situation, when we see a very, very credible, these were not just you know one or two witnesses said, oh, we thought there might have been multiple shooters. No, there were uh, very firm uh, reports of multiple shooters, including the police announced that they had arrested multiple shooters. So when I see reports like this, I'm skeptical, and I wonder whether there might be some kind of COINTELPRO operation going on. Maybe the Black Lives Matter movement has the powers that be scared, just like Dr. Martin Luther King scared them and got killed for it. Uh, and maybe one of the ways that they're fighting back is to try to smear the Black Lives Matter movement by setting up these killings of police officers to be blamed on angry black men, to further demonize the kind of so-called angry black men who are the problem with Black Lives Matter. 
And it wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. I don't think the case there is yet conclusive, but I included it in the book uh, because I, I think we really do have to, as Cynthia McKinney says, be patriotic and look at these kinds of reports skeptically based on what we already know that so many of these incidents turn out to be fabricated state-sponsored false flag terror. Well, didn't the Dallas police themselves report snipers shooting, multiple snipers? Uh, That was in the news, I thought. Yes, they did. The the Dallas police reported multiple snipers, uh, and these were, again, very firm reports. And then they actually reported, I believe, multiple arrests. Uh, So you really uh, kind of have to scratch your head on that one to to figure out how that all devolved on one patsy that they could just execute. So, yeah, that's a very, very suspicious one. It, it kind of would fit the script. This is the sort of thing that experts in false flag terror do. They have political goals, in this case, maybe demonize Black Lives Matter and try and you know restrain it, keep it from getting too big. And uh, they do it by staging these kinds of bloody public relations stunts. What about the Bastille Day incident July 14th on the boardwalk in Nice, France? And then again on July 22nd, there was a shopping mall shooting in Munich, Germany. Were there any connections between the Munich and Nice attacks? Were these incidents filmed, and and if so, by whom? Well, that's a very leading question, <laughs> but uh, that objection is overruled. And let, let me tell you that, uh, yes, the photographer who captured both of these events, iconic footage that was put out in the global media of both events, it was the same guy, a guy named Richard Guchar. He appears to have been pre-positioned on the balcony in Nice, France, where he captured what was presented to the world as the beginning of the lethal truck attack on the Esplanade in Nice. And then I believe the story may have been revised to say that that it was actually in the middle of the attack. I'm not sure. But it was presented to the world as the beginning of the truck attack. So there he was sitting on his balcony in Nice, France. And there's a truck just, you know, driving. And he just picks up his camera and points at the truck. And he gets really lucky. And that turns out that truck is going to go and mow some people down. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, the same guy, uh, Richard Guchar, shows up again uh, a week later in Munich, Germany. And once again, he's providing the world with the iconic footage of a terror attack. This time it's the Munich shopping mall shooting. Now, that may be one coincidence too far for a lot of people, but uh, you haven't heard the half of it yet because it turns out that he's married to Einet Wilf. Einet Wilf is a former uh, advisor to the Israeli prime minister. She is a top Israeli uh, operator. She's linked to the think tank Uh, WINEP, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which is a leading neocon think tank that has officially called for false flag terror events. Uh, WINEP's director, Patrick Clawson, famously made a video where he gave a speech calling for a false flag attack to start a war with Iran. And he went through basically the same history I've gone over in this interview, Bonnie, about how every war the U.S. has gotten into has required uh, a trigger event to do it. You know, he says, we couldn't invade Mexico until, you know, we had that shootout. We couldn't uh, fight Spain until the Maine blew up. You know, we couldn't get into World War I until the Lusitania went down. We couldn't get into World War II until Pearl Harbor. We couldn't get into Vietnam until the Gulf of Tonkin. And we won't be able to start our war with Iran, which we avidly desire, until the trigger event happens. He's on record saying this. Now, Einet Wilf, the husband of Guchar, the photographer who was there providing propaganda footage of these two terror attacks within the same week in Nice and then over in Munich, uh, she's part of that think tank that calls for false flags. 
So uh, just over-the-top shamelessness really seems to describe some of these people who put their same operative, Richard Guchar, on the balcony in Nice to film that attack, and then they put him at the shopping mall in Munich less than a week later to film that attack. Uh, if anybody thinks that this is a coincidence and that his marriage to Einet Wilf is, is also a coincidence, I'm afraid that person is a crazy coincidence theorist. Well, you know, I believe that is the footage that came out right after the Nice incident. And it said, here is a film of the of this uh, lorry or this truck mowing people down. And I watched this uh, clip over and over and over again. It, it didn't show any such thing. All it showed was a truck moving. <laughs> No, no kidding. Well, this is, and this is a very strange pattern, Bonnie. We see this repeatedly as well. They told us that this was this awful, horrific footage of this truck mowing people down. Uh, I, I heard Sean Hannity repeat that kind of statement many, many, many times as I watched the kind of live coverage of the aftermath of that attack, or alleged attack. And uh, we never actually saw any footage. This footage just shows a truck starting up and heading off down the street, basically. <laughs> so that, 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 doesn't that remind you of the footage of the police officer being shot point blank in the head with an AK-47 after the Charlie Hebdo supposed massacre only? There's no such shooting. That, that video was likewise presented to the world as this horrific, bloody footage, uh, discretion necessary. And then they even said we had to cut out the key moment of this footage because it was too bloody. Well, the uncensored version of that video shows that rather than showing a ninja terrorist running up to a cop who's lying on the sidewalk, and putting an AK-47 up to his head and blowing his brains out, that no such thing happened. The guy dressed as the terrorist runs up to the cop on the sidewalk and then aims the gun uh, a meter away from the head and fires what appears to be a blank round of cotton or paper, kicking up a little dust over on the sidewalk and leaving the guy's head completely unscathed. And yet to this day, the French government tells us that that policeman was executed on that sidewalk, a blatant falsehood. So they got away with it, and then uh, they cut out the portion that showed that it was a non-shooting. It was a blank round fired away from the head. And likewise, with this truck attack footage, they're whipping people up into a hysteria of hatred of Muslims by saying, oh, this crazy Muslim, he mowed people down. We've got this horrific, bloody footage, and here it is. And people see it, and, you know, they kind of remember what they've been hypnotically programmed to remember. But... You can prove to them that no such footage exists. And that's another problem with these events is that there's virtually never any actual footage of what supposedly happened. This Esplanade in Nice is full of people with cell phone cameras, smartphones, uh, and it's got all of that CCTV coverage. Not one image of the actual attack has ever emerged from anywhere. Likewise, with the Bataclan nightclub shooting, you know, we're told that this packed nightclub during a rock concert was shot up with horrific carnage and mayhem, and yet... There's not a single actual uh, cell phone image or any other kind of convincing image of any of that happening. Uh, and, and likewise in Orlando, the uh, security cameras just happened to be malfunctioning that night. And we had, you know, what, the, the 200 plus people in the nightclub and not a single convincing image has emerged from inside or even outside the nightclub. Uh, this is all very, very, very strange. No, that's right. They tell you what you're seeing, but it doesn't exist. It's not there. The The other thing that struck me as so odd about Nice right away is that there were multiple, multiple pictures on the internet of people, I guess relatives or, or uh, tourists, sitting down beside 
what we're told are dead bodies with drapes over them. And I thought to myself, well, this is supposed to be a crime scene. These are supposed to be dead bodies, but they're letting people stroll through there and and sit next to these bodies. I mean, crime scenes aren't handled that way, are they, even in France? Well, no. Uh, you have to ask yourself, where's the yellow police tape, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we see this pattern as well, that rather than being treated as crime scenes, they're treated as essentially uh, media public relations studios. This happened at the apartment of the Patsies who were executed in San Bernardino, the Muslim couple there who took the blame for something that they obviously didn't do. Uh, at their apartment, uh, shortly after that event, the media, the police essentially stepped back and allowed the media to come in and completely ransack the apartment. Uh, just trashed it. And so that apartment no longer had any evidentiary value whatsoever after that happened. And this would not be what any real police would do if there was an actual crime involved. Uh, and so it's not surprising to see this kind of activity at Nice. Tell us about the reporting of Hisham Hamza. Who is he and what happened to him? Well, Hisham Hamza is a French investigative reporter. He runs the website panamza.com. And I think he's the best investigative reporter in Paris right now. He broke many of the most important stories about the Charlie Hebdo event and then that subsequent French false flag on November 13th, 2015. Hisham Hamza was actually arrested for his reportage on the Bataclan nightclub shooting. And that's an interesting story in itself. As we mentioned, there's a real shortage of any kind of actual footage or photographs of what actually happened at, at any of these terror events. But there is one and only one picture of dead bodies um, in Paris on November 13, 2015. Now, think about that. We had a multiple location uh, attack. We had a bombing, supposedly, at the, at the French stadium, the Stade de France. We had shootings at the Belle Equipe nightclub and inside the Bataclan Theater, where the worst casualties were, uh, so we're told. And uh, yet, not one single dead body except one photo. And that photo shows uh, a bunch of bodies, or parent bodies, lying in uh, kind of disheveled positions on the floor of the Bataclan nightclub. And somehow, a huge heart shape has been drawn on the floor of the Bataclan in blood. Uh, it's about maybe, uh, oh, about four feet, five feet thick, uh, this, this heart shape. So the line that drew the heart on the floor of the Bataclan nightclub would have to be one of those things they used to wash the floor in Walmart that leaves like a four-foot trail of liquid. Well, imagine somebody using one of those to paint a four-foot thick blood heart on the floor of the Bataclan. So we see that blood heart, and we see a bunch of bodies on the floor of the Bataclan. That's the only image of any dead bodies in Paris that day. And where did that come from? Well, turns out it was tweeted into existence by uh, an Israeli-based think tank. Surprise, surprise. Uh, it's the Israelis supplying us with our iconic terror images once again. And Isham Hamza tracked down this, uh, this photo and found who tweeted it into existence, again, an Israeli think tank, and he published the story. And with his story, he published that photo. Well, the next thing you know, he was under arrest. The charge was that he was impugning the dignity of the victims. It turns out there's a law in France that they can use to try to suppress pictures of uh, people who are victims of terror events. Anyway, Hisham Hamza was arrested for, for publishing this photo in his news story showing that the real criminals, 
under French law, the people who had actually taken and disseminated that photo were, in fact, uh, members of a right-wing neocon Israeli think tank. Kevin Barrett, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Bonnie. Keep up the great work. I've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show has been Recent False Flags. Dr. Barrett has taught Arabic, Islamic studies, folklore, African literature, French, and humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and San Francisco State University. He holds a Ph.D. in African languages, Arabic, with an Islamic studies focus from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the editor of a trilogy of anthologies on false flag events. We are not Charlie Hebdo. Free thinkers question the French 9-11. Another French false flag? Bloody tracks from Paris to San Bernardino. And his most recent, Orlando false flag, the clash of histories. He has lectured extensively in Morocco, Turkey, and Iran, as well as the U.S. and Europe. Kevin Barrett's radio programs are archived at noliesradio.org. Visit his website at truthjihad.com. That's truthjihad.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yarol Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life.